Welcome to This is the North podcast, your source of transformative conversation, an intentional challenge to the systems holding back the North of England. Hosted by Alison Dunn, an award-winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company and is dedicated to curating and sharing knowledge, powering the change we need for a more equal and inclusive society. This is a podcast about disparities and opportunities and outcomes between the North and the South. So let's start by explaining what this looks like. 38% of children in the North East are living in poverty. 41% of key workers live in poverty compared to our closest rival for this accolade, which is the North West at 29%. We've got the lowest A-level and GCE results in the country. And we have much lower life expectancy than the South and our later years are spent in much poorer health. So, with that as the backdrop to our conversation today, let's start with you, Kevin. So, you're an advisor to Monster Lab, a global brand with a commitment to change the world through tech, and more recently the founder of a kick, Finpact, which is very much about unleashing the Northeast's potential. You've spent a lot of your working life in London, and yet you describe yourself as tethered to the Northeast. Why is that? I was born in Gator, and proudly so and spent my life as a kid in the 70s, remembering that the house that we lived in had an outside toilet, didn't have any central heating, we had no TV, and our education was basically on the streets. The schools and the universities weren't as well established for people like us. So I've always had a, a dream that to come back to the North East and, and do something about that. And it's taken me a little bit too long, but that, that's the, the thing that keeps me here. I've always lived and had a property in the northeast, and I've worked globally, as you see, I'm in London. So I think I've got a good perspective on all the changes that I've seen happening over the decades. And Robin, you're based in the south. You're now the CEO of Banquet, the UK's first digital zero waste food donation platform. But you came from a long career in the music industry. That's quite a change. So what made you take the leap, and why social entrepreneurship? Yeah, hi Alison, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's great to be back in the tune. Yeah. So I grew up in the south of England, I've fired up here today from Hackney on the train, but I went to Northumbria University far too many years ago to mention. So the northeast will always have a special place in my heart. So yeah, after 10 years of working in the music industry and seeing a widespread digital transformation, I launched Banquet. So Banquet is the UK's first zero-waste food donation platform. We're a social impact company and on a mission to get food banks what they need, when they need it, and to make it easy for people to give. So if you rewind about you know four years before COVID, the way that one would donate to a food bank, and by the way, one of the first food banks on the platform is here in Gateshead. So it's amazing they're part of our story. Prior to COVID, you'd donate offline. You might be in the supermarket doing a shop for yourself and drop a few things in the basket, which is obviously amazing and people should do that. What that creates for food banks is an issue where they have perhaps too much pasta, baked beans and cereals. And this is why I started this. I was volunteering at food banks in London and I saw, my goodness, we've got a year's worth of those things. There are other things that we need that someone walking into a food bank would need, like UHD milk or baby goods or tinned meat. So I thought these headlines of, you know, people using more food banks, more need than ever before, which was the case in 2019, and then COVID hit and then cost of living, it's progressively got worse. And right now there are more people using food banks than ever before. There are more food banks in the UK than there are McDonald's. And so how Banquet works is that someone can go online in their phone, they can donate per month or 
uh, one off if they wish to so Gateshead Food Bank. The food banks then log into our system and they choose what they want, like an online food shop. You know? So we'd say for every pound donated, we deliver more than a pound's worth of food. So it's been an interesting few years. We launched eight months just before COVID, and now we support nearly 300 food banks across the UK and Ireland. We've seen three million pounds donated, and since the beginning of COVID, we've been shipping out food in bulk. So my journey is sort of referencing what I saw happen in music. I'm of the age, which I won't say on air, where I remember CD to, to, to streaming, and it's applying that to the third sector, saying, hold on a minute, Food banks are charities, they're perhaps a bit old school in their adoption of technology. I could see from my own professional career, oh, here's, here's how, we can, how we can help. I mean, I've heard that statistic before, actually, about more food banks than McDonald's, and it really is a shocking statistic. And, of course, one of the challenges of the cost of living crisis now is that you know, fewer people are donating to food banks in the traditional sense. So how's that played out for you in your business? Yeah, absolutely. We've had a really interesting journey. So when the Q1 of 2020, I'll never forget, we launched eight months before with Gateshead and some other ones in London I mentioned. We came into that year thinking, right, we're a social impact business, we want to help more people. The more food banks we get on the platform, the more donations we raise, the more food we can buy and the more you know, people we can help. You know, we're tackling hunger, that's what we're doing. February to March 2020, donations via the platform went up by over 5,000%. They're coming in so quickly as people were just so kind. It was a profound time where, on the one hand, there was terrible need. We've all got our own COVID story, haven't we? Mine was quite unique of like, okay, we're a digital organisation, we're all working remotely, everyone suddenly learns how to use Zoom. I think for any organisation, if you didn't have a digital strategy in the run-up to COVID, you may not even exist anymore. But for Banquet, we were a digital platform. We're an online zero-waste platform. We accelerated like never before. So I can't sit here and say perhaps we would be as successful as we are if it wasn't for COVID, ironically. Mm-hmm. That time, people were able probably to donate more easily as well. If you think, you know, in, in this room, people listening, you may have been on furlough, you may have just worked from home. Some people possibly ended up better off after of that, that process. And fast forwarding to the cost of living crisis, it's now worse than ever before. Because you think everyone's costs has gone up, hasn't it? If you're, you're rent, your mortgage, your food. But now we need people to donate more than ever before. So someone who may have said in COVID, sure, I'll drop 50 quid because here's a 50 pound donation to get to food back. Everyone should do that listening. But that's easy to do when you're not going out and you can't travel and you, you know, your, your expenditure's gone down. But now it's time we've all felt the pinch, haven't we? So we're in this strange position now where we need people to support more than ever before because people need help more than ever before. But we're all feeling the pinch, so yeah, it's a challenging time. Yeah, certainly within the Citizens Advice Network, which you know I've got some experience of, we've had more requests for support, for charitable support to include food banks than ever before. Right. It's in the top five inquiry areas at the moment, yeah. along with fuel poverty. Food banks in our network say that you know, they're overwhelmed. If you throw in the Ukraine crisis, Brexit, more people than ever before are having a need, and that stops at the door of, of food banks. Estelle, as the executive director of the Innovation Super Network, you've more than 25 years' experience in economic development through regeneration and innovation. And I suspect that you'd want to remind us all that innovation isn't just about tech. Yes, thank you, Alison. And again, it's it's really good to be here this afternoon talking about a, such an important topic about the North and the North East in particular. 
Yes, I think that's a good place to start when we talk about innovation as a solution to support economic development, to not mix it up and, and really understand what we mean by innovation. A lot of policies, a lot of organisations think of innovation as tech or indeed investment in R&D. And that is most of the time how innovation is measured. But primarily innovation is about creating value. So generally, a technology in itself doesn't create value, is how you use the technology. And we've just heard a, a perfect example of that with Banquet. So the, the tech in itself is not what is going to create the, the value, the impact for, for people and users, but the innovative thinking and the, the system change that Banquet has created in that case is what innovation really is. And this is when you link innovation to true economic development and growth. Kevin, I've heard somebody say, I can't remember where, you're either an activist or you're an entrepreneur. You complain or you do something about it. And I think that sort of underpins what you're trying to do with FinPAC, does it not? Certainly does. And what a great statement, Alison. Thank you. You can either sit while someone's in a pool and throw them a lifeline or you can jump in and save them. And I'm for the latter. I think we see a lot of things wrong with the North East, the disparity between North and South, some of the figures you gave. And we're definitely not homogeneous. We are different. When you start to break down some of those perceptions, even from the way we speak and the way we talk, to the fact that our road transport network isn't as good as the M62 on the other side of the north. And if you look at the historic sort of backgrounds to where funding goes between north and south, the facts are the facts. And so we live in a place where we're more challenged but I think that brings out the fighting spirit and our passion. And if we organise ourselves and stitch ourselves together across the great support networks that we have, and we've got some great success in the northeast as well, in your corporates and your, and your sages and castle building societies and, and many others. And we've got some great entrepreneurs. And I think now's the time really to, to take the leap and line ourselves up to, to a clear purpose with the mission and values that we, we want to make the change now. I think there's a lot of talk being happening. So we created FinPact. And FinPact, that is the purpose, is to stitch this region together. Not necessarily create new, but definitely innovate on top and make an impact. And we can go into a little bit more detail about that. But yes, make the change. Be the, the artefact of change. And Estelle, we've got a rich history of innovation, not least a vast industrial heritage in the northeast of England, and yet it seems that we have low levels of entrepreneurship and scaling up opportunities. Why is that, do you think? OK, so, so if I may, I will start with the good news, because we always tend to think about the northeast as the place where it is hard to start a business and hard to, to scale a business. And there's truth in that and the statistics speaks for themselves. However, things are changing. And I think I, I just want to build on, on the point that's just been made here around the passion and tenacity that exists in this region. So there, there's a, a fantastic culture of tenacity, a, a culture of innovation, as you say, that dates back from the Industrial Revolution and has always remained something that I've always witnessed in the region. So, so there's some really good things going on in the region. 
in 2020, this region received the biggest investment, 28% of the, the share of investment in net zero, for example. And that's because we've got companies that innovate in that space, companies that are doing things differently in the space and therefore attract the investment. We've got a really healthy tech sector that has attracted 50% of all equity deal in the Northeast. So again, this is something that attracts finance. Our cultural and creative sector creates £4 billion for the economy in the region. And a recent study as well from, from Stage has commented on the fact that more than 80% of female-led startups in the region feel that they are receiving the support that they need to grow. And I just wanted to, to start with this because... Yes, it, the backdrop and, uh, you know, the, the, the statistics are saying that we're still in the bottom of every measure in terms of entrepreneurship, business startup numbers per capita and scale up numbers. But the potential is there. I think what's missing is a number of things. That, and that is one of my main point is that actually what we need to address the lack of or the reduced numbers in entrepreneurship and the, the, uh, creating the right ecosystem is because we've looked at this in a very transactional way for a very long time. And actually, really changing that is hard. It's doing the hard stuff. It's not just saying we're going to have an intervention and expect jobs to come out of this in the next six months, in the next two years. It just won't happen in that way. So we need to kind of shift away from direct interventions with the hope of changing a system that actually is very imperfect and needs basically a drastic change. So it's system thinking that we're talking about, not just a transactional, we're going to put a course together and suddenly create 100 new entrepreneurs. It's not how it works. Unfortunately, we have seen over 20 years or so of policies that look at kind of three-year cycle of investment in that space. And to achieve the transformation, we need to look longer term and we need to be more transformational in our thinking. Yeah, that populist sort of setting of policy is really problematic, isn't it? Because we're barely getting a run at two or three years of anything before there's a new policy comes along that requires yeah. us to do something different. Yes, yeah, that's right. So short-termism is definitely one of the main blockages in terms of, you know, interventions that are either led, you know, locally or nationally. And also the very obvious thing for the Northeast is the need for us to be able to to shape it ourselves, to have, you know, our own vision and our own leadership that is not dictated by other regions. And I'm even talking about, you know, other northern regions. We all have individual needs, individual traits. Yes, we are all trying to address very similar societal challenges and global challenges. And for this, we need to be working collaboratively and together. But the northeast will not move from the bottom of most of the leaderboards on, on innovation, entrepreneurship, education, health, etc., unless we design and lead our own story. And I know that sounds easy to say, but that's the really hard thing to do. And unfortunately, policies and decision makings in terms of what is needed, what intervention is required, requires long-term vision with things will change progressively by changing our ecosystem and making an ecosystem that is more to enable everybody to flourish in, in that ecosystem. Robin, 62% of equity finance seems to be in London, but it only hosts 19% of the UK's smaller businesses, with 60% of investors based in London. I suppose, what impact do you think this has on social innovation? That's interesting. I think it has a huge impact. I mean, I, I grew up in the south of England, 
I went to Northumbria University for four years with a placement year working for an independent record label. And then I came back here, then headed to London. I've now lived in, in London for 16 years. So I suppose for context, I, I am in the bubble. And it was just lovely coming up here again. So I remember when I first arrived in Newcastle those years ago, just a different culture, much more friendly, a smaller sort of place, wonderful place to be as a student. It is the Westminster thing in London. I mean, to Estelle's point earlier, innovation isn't just about here's loads of money, off you go. I suppose London is the financial capital of the UK. Small businesses, any anyone wanting to start a company is going to be drawn to that. That's one thing. I think it's just inevitable, isn't it? If like, people go where the money is to support what they're doing, we would want to see change. If like, you know, the barriers to entry of starting a business in London are huge. You know, the cost of living is massive compared to up north. So I think there could be a shift. And I think COVID, for all the negative things that that brought around, and if you think about it rolling back in you know, 1999 when BlackBerry launched, this has been a film out on BlackBerry, which I'm mildly obsessed with, rolling forward to the iPhone, all this stuff, they pioneered the need to you know, not go into the city. I watched, I watched it in the film this week, it's saying, man won't have to go into the office anymore. People no longer live in cities. This is what the BlackBerry's bringing around, you know, working from home. And then you fast forward to COVID with Zooms, you think is now a shift where there could be a if you don't need to come to London anymore, you don't need to go to the big city, you don't even need to be in the centre of Newcastle. You can be anywhere, you could be on the coast in a huge place with loads of energy and time. I think it comes down to lots of different things. Innovation is a mindset, isn't it, about, you know, any entrepreneur would think about, you know, what problem am I trying to solve? Who am I solving it for? How am I going to do that? It's not, here's loads of money, off you go. And that's why I think stuff Kevin is doing with financial literacy, access to technology and early age. My old university in Northumbria now does a MSc in entrepreneurship. So I think it can be from a young age, it's a shift in mindset and you can be anywhere to do that. I acknowledge I'm totally in the bubble in London, right? I acknowledge that. So removing myself from that, I'm like, there's innovation everywhere. There's like, oh, there's a new startup, there's a new pop-up, there's vegan stuff everywhere. But I think on one hand, it's a very exciting time. When you think about like chat GTP and all of these things, chat GTP is one of the fastest growing pieces of software in the world. It launched in November. There's already 100 million users. I mean, the fact that you're in the South, we're not holding that against no, you no, at no, all. No. It's an interesting perspective. But investment is an issue, Kevin, isn't it? And certainly it's something that you and I have talked about in the context of Finpact and how you get some of those projects off the ground. Absolutely, Arson. And just listening to what Estelle said, that's so true that these things are long term requires a purpose, a vision, a mission, and a set of activities that around inclusivity, collaborating together to make that big change. So what we're doing at FinPAC, we're starting with small. And we've identified a number of problem statements, like the North East has one of the highest poverty premiums in the UK, if not the largest. And that's a big problem. So it's great to be in the company, the likes of Robin tackling that. And if we look at what we're doing with, with FinPAC, we've got three pillars. The first pillar is talent inspiring our talent at early ages to get involved in digital. And digital has many components, including tech, data, ways of working, culture, agile. So if you look at that whole digital set of things that's within digital, that on the curriculum somehow being brought to life through real-life projects around that. So some of our talent that might be displaced by AI from contact centres, retraining them, giving the skill sets, 
kids that never get the chance to go to university, so modern apprenticeships, etc. So what we've done, we've taken those problem statements and we've created a hypothesis against it. And within that hypothesis, we've started to speculate what potential use cases using digital that we can bring to life. And we've got over 50 students coming to do that research to, to identify a use case. So that's pillar one. Second pillar is innovation. So with that research, whether it's existing research, it's pulled together, no duplication, or whether it's new research using real data, we've created a data asset. And we've got access to over 280 data sets, be it from Lloyds Bank or Barclays Bank, etc. So people can come around that and say, that's a problem, this is a potential use case, I need these data points to stand up the facts. And we're providing that free to education. So on the innovation, we set up teams, and we've got Durham and many of the universities that are gifting us some talent to work on those research projects. And they will come up and for over six-month periods, so that 25 years of research against the problem statement and the use case. That use case comes to where the question started in the third pillar, which is impact. And in that impact, we've got a group of investors, and I've been absolutely overwhelmed by the support from entrepreneurs like you know, Open Media or big organisations like Newcastle Building Society coming to the front to say, we will support you, including Estelle and others, just by getting around the problem. Okay. So it's the first time I've seen the innovation being born out of real people's problems, but the investors sit on the top, so it can be VC, private equity, it can be corporate, it can be innovation, super network, it can be wherever... The money is because we'll prove the desirability, the feasibility, the viability of those use cases, and we'll take them to market. So you've got about 55 of those projects that are available for organisations to get round. And I think that'll be a USP for us in the UK. I think if we can mm. stitch that together, we've got, I think, six projects right now that are going to be live. If we just get one to the impact, and then just listen to Robin, I'm thinking... How can we accelerate and scale that? Well, no, I just want to think what you're doing there is absolutely amazing. And I'd be terrified to, to see all the ideas that come up with. I, mean, I remember coming to university here, I had to go to the computer room to send a text message. Years before the smartphone, all the technology you're using now with students, I mean, I'd be frightened to keep up, plugging AI into the back of it. I think it's incredible what you're doing there. And now we all remote working is the future. Technology allows people to, to connect and to collaborate. You don't have to be in the same office in an expensive location anymore. You can work from home, you can work remotely. I acknowledge that there's a barrier to entry there still. I know not everyone would have a laptop or a smartphone, particularly with what we're doing. We all know that it, that is a thing, and I'm aware of that. Poorer families perhaps don't have access to a computer. That's one barrier for us all to overcome. But if you do, I think once you've got past that, the barriers to innovation are, are small. Uh, you don't you don't need loads of money to start something. You know, Banquet is a company, we're bootstrapping, we're tiny. When it all happened and kicked off in lockdown, we had 200 people step forward to volunteer for us, many of whom I've never met or never seen, but they're all over the UK. So we open your laptop, off you go. We're already on Slack, we're on Notion, we're on Zoom. We're already on those things. We started 2020 with just me and a laptop. Yeah, and the idea that you can volunteer for a company like Banquet from anywhere yeah. in the country is social entrepreneurship in right, itself, right. isn't it? Yeah, we wouldn't have known it would accelerate as it did. We started that year with myself and a friend who's a developer helping out. 
in the space of six weeks, 150 people stepped forward to volunteer. The whole mindset of what I was probably going to talk into is like, it's a mindset, what is in your hand? For anyone listening to this, like, what problem do you want to solve? Like, know what you know. You don't have to try and be Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. You, you know yourself, your perspective on the world is totally different. I started banquet in my late 30s feeling like, gosh, I've already had one career. Am I too old to be an entrepreneur? But then I realised, oh, I have seen stuff, I've made mistakes, I've failed, I've been successful, I've been at these companies, oh, I can, I can bring that. That's what I know. Well, you're definitely not too old because you've <laughs> talked about moving from CDs to streaming, but yes. I was thinking about cassettes, so there oh. you go. Estelle? Yeah, I just wanted to build on some of the very good points that were made here. You mentioned, well, been a couple of times, the, the kind of barriers to entry that exist everywhere, including in London. So even if you are a business in London, if you are trying to raise finance, if you're trying to grow a business, you're going to face a lot of barriers in a very similar way than we do here in the Northeast. And that's why I think what we're trying to do here is is not to play catch up. And, you know, I was talking about policies before, you know, any policy that is here to to kind of bring us up to the same level as an existing imperfect system, whether it's London, the Southeast or any comparators somewhere in the world, is doomed to fail because we're trying to replicate imperfect systems. So what we need to do in the North and everywhere is think about it differently. And I think what, Kevin, you were saying is what I believe is is part of the solution of thinking about things differently. So instead of looking at market failure, and, you know, all the things that are not working and trying to address the things that are not working, we're, we're talking more about market shaping. And I know these are words, but actually, when you do implement things in that way, it makes a big difference. So the kind of things that we've been doing with the Super Network for quite a long time is, is work in that kind of open innovation ethos and looking at big challenges, smaller challenges, industrial challenges, societal challenges, and look at how can we bring all the different elements of our ecosystem that need to be thinking or worrying about that that problem or indeed a problem we are suffering the most about. So that's kind of what I, I call loosely challenge-led innovation, mission-led innovation. So you're going to shape the market, you're going to shape the solution to address a particular challenge. And that rate is a lot of hard work, as you're experiencing with, with impact. And, and, but when it works the magic happens and actually you can start seeing a massive difference in our world for for the people who have the problem starting to see those problems being addressed for the innovators trying to find a market for further innovation and for the investors who are trying to find good solutions good investment to make that actually have attraction and a need in the marketplace so when you bring all of these things together and you shape solutions that are needed for your particular problem and you use innovation you use creativity you use all of your players in the ecosystem that's when you start to see a big difference these kind of interventions are more transformative but they take longer so you might not see immediately the creation of a hundred jobs in in a particular place but you will you will see this in, in, in the longer term because you'll create entrepreneurs that are more equipped to scale businesses and have access to investment you'll create entrepreneurs that have access to markets that in a place like the northeast they may not have direct access to market for innovation and in working in that way in working with challenges bringing people all the, the, the key players of an ecosystem that I've mentioned 
you're, you're starting to see that transformation happen. And I suppose from that, I would ask, you know, we are on the cusp of the extension of devolution in the northeast of England. And of course, we have this famous phrase of levelling up. Do either of those things provide any sort of space for that market shaping that you've talked about? Or would you consider them to be red herrings? So I believe that I've got faith, hope, a bit of both in what devolution is going to bring in the region. Because, you know, I would be contradicting myself if, if I didn't. You know, I was talking about having our own vision and creating our own story and addressing the problem that we need to address here that may not be the same as what happens in the northwest or in London and the southeast. So the, the devolution is a step in the right direction. Like everything, it's about how it's in, being implemented. It's about keeping that kind of vision and really looking long term. But I think the idea of having a voice and a leadership for the entire of the Northeast, rather than having this separated into various local authorities, etc., is, in my opinion, more likely to, to result in collaborative kind of visionary thinking. So this bit, I think, is definitely something that needs to happen for this region. I think I've already commented on, I didn't use the word levelling up, but I've already commented on the fact that I, I think that that concept is flawed because levelling up means that you're trying to catch up with something that's already happening elsewhere. And we know that this is not necessarily perfect. It's not something that we, we can or should replicate for, for the North East. So there's clearly some disparities in terms of public funding between the South and the North and investment in general. I mean, this region only receives less than 4% of the total equity finance and innovation finance that's available in the UK. So when you compare that to the population, you know, roughly 50-50 between the North and the South, and that's uh, something that's not just North, it's the entire North, we know we have a problem. But levelling up is not necessarily a concept that I, I believe is what we need. You know, I've been talking in, in past blogs about the concept of lipfrogging, the concept of, as I said, shaping our own vision and basically making making it work for the northeast. Certainly, I mean, if we think about public spending and we look at the northwest in particular, they're spending about £2,500 less per head in public spending in comparison to London, which is a significant amount of money. And the other thing where there are some fairly significant disparities are in terms of educational attainment. We've already talked about the fact that our A-level and GCSE results are the worst in the country, actually, in comparison to London. And Kevin, this is something that you and I have spoken about before, but there is, it always seems to be, and I don't know if this is unique to the North East, so Robin, I'll be interested to hear what you think about this as well. We always seem to be lagging behind in terms of skills versus opportunities. From thinking about AI in particular, you know, are, where are we in terms of developing the skills to be able to move into these jobs, to be able to become social entrepreneurs, to be able to keep pace with tech? It always feels like we're a little bit behind the curve. Yeah, and I think that I think I've got more hope of people like Estelle get attached to devolution and have a voice, because devolution is exactly what that organisation has been set up to do. It's leap up, not level up. Because levelling up is still has a massive disparity to, to where we've come from. So it has to be a, a significant change in the way we do things. So that when we do go to devolution, we need to have the voices of the people that really matter direct and, and help and shape the policies and the, the impact the projects we need. So I think that that's a good segue into education. 
Secondary education is the worst. But we haven't got the worst teachers. We've got excellent teachers overworked and working in underfunded, neglected school systems where kids can't got pencils to go to school with, where people can't even afford school uniforms. So there's some fundamental issues in that. So one of the pro- but is that pro- is that wildly different to the uh, south? There's pockets though? of poverty everywhere in the UK, and the you know it is homogeneous in some elements of, of the statistics, but when you look at the higher level of statistics like the investments and the ratios to GDP, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and inward investment, there's been some great work done on inward investment in tech in the northeast in the last two or three years, by the way, and that is a fundamental shift that we will see that impact starting to come through in the months and years ahead. So that, that's one thing. Is, so there's organisations not sitting by putting that investment. So two, education. Education is that we say the curriculum's broken, but it can take two years to get a change in curriculum into policy and into the seats and the chairs and in the classrooms across education and, and universities. So when something like AI hits or machine learning or, and this is the part of FinPAC's really um, focused on, how do we create job-ready people with the skills because there is demand in the northeast. There's demand for product designers. There's demand for IoT, API engineers. There's a shortage of skill sets. So there's a way that we can break down borders with that by, by as Robin said, linking up talent everywhere. So it, it's not isolated. So ways of working in culture can, can help education as well. But the key here is one of the projects that we're working, we've got three schools, and we're looking at areas around financial inclusion, financial literacy, and when you go into these schools and you see the kids, they haven't got access to computers and digital, yet the whole future is about digital transformation and, and getting jobs in that space. So we have to get out as organisations, stitch ourselves together, that's been being done, amplify what's already there, do a little bit of difference and work with the schools. So an entrepreneur uh, alongside a mentor and alongside some talent, filling in gaps where the entrepreneur's got gaps in commercial that's a big problem for entrepreneurs. They've got the great ideas, they've got the savvy, but are they commercially minded? So filling mentors alongside the entrepreneurs. But also working our target market, for example, in secondary is, is the kids. Is how can we help better their education by linking these things together? And we'll publish these use cases that and the hard, gnarly, wicked problems that we have to solve. But I'll tell you something. We might be relatively poor compared to everything in the northeast, but we're rich on goodwill and purpose. Is that when you get collaboration around communities together around a problem, boy, can we do some great things. This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company. Robin, you may or may not be able to answer this, but there's this high take-up of free school meals in London, and yet there's still very good educational attainment. In the North, when we think about that, we tend to think that the educational attainment's linked to poverty, but clearly there's still there's a disparity there if we've got even more people on free school meals in the South, but they're still managing to achieve those GCSE, A-levels and higher education outcomes. Do you have any insight as to why that might be? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, free school meals, there are a lot of people that end up falling through the gaps in the the UK's benefit system. So people may get free school meals and then we see a lot of people coming to food banks. It's referred to, sadly, as holiday hunger. So people potentially were getting school meals whilst at school in in the school holidays, Easter, Christmas and the summer. Food banks we support see an influx in people coming to use their services. 
to more more families coming in. When the Ukraine crisis first impacted, food banks, and I would say that Ukrainian families came to food banks in the first instance. No doubt the link, I mean, I can't speak into too much as a parent in terms of home life and how that impacts your education and food, but for sure the stuff you've mentioned there about, you know, the northeast saw the largest percentage increase in the number of parcels distributed last year compared to the same region and all the regions across the UK. So the growth in the northeast of more people going hungry and going to food banks and representative of population size is really concerning. London is there aren't like, there's not there's not any poor people in London at all you know that we support ourselves like fifty plus food banks and London is a place where you know extreme wealth and extreme poverty live side by side so you could go in a very affluent area in London which you've all probably heard of Chelsea you can walk through there on one side of the street there are huge mansions multi million pound houses just around the corner there's a a council estate. You know, the first food bank on Banquet we supported was Wandsworth Food Bank. That's where I was volunteering. That's where the story began. And that's a place where if you can afford to buy a family house in Wandsworth, you're probably doing pretty well in life. But then literally the other side of the road, you've got people who are having to use the food banks and they're getting free school meals. I mean, just to touch back on what Kevin was talking about there, I think the high-level issue in, is a, a national one. We think about entrepreneurship and a lack of risk-taking. So America is number one. Look at your phone. How many apps on there were made by a British company? Probably none. You know, when London Tech Week, the government and Richard Sinek talked about how, how heralding AI, you know, the UK should be the regulation of AI. I think that's just not, that doesn't talk to me as an entrepreneur. We want to regulate things. We want to innovate. We want to make things happen. And then inevitably that trickles down or goes from London, doesn't it? If, like, if we're nationally saying, well, we're not really going to innovate and, and encourage that spirit of, of, of trying to do something. And, you know, founding banquets were the hardest things I ever have ever done. But you, you've got to stare failure in the face and you've got to go for it. And I don't think, nationally, I don't think we're necessarily that great at that. I think if American, it's okay to fail, maybe that culture. Oh, I've got a startup, I didn't work, I do something else. I don't think we like that as a as a nation particularly, we love to you look at the narratives you see in the media all the time about, oh, successful, we're successful, we drag people down. I think that makes people risk averse. If you then put in that, that you think you need lots of money to launch something and you can't get access to funding and all the stuff Estelle's talking about, oh, you're, you're a female as well, sorry about that. You know, it's kind of like you have this snowball thing. And in trying to address that, we've, well, the government's announced a number of investment zones, haven't they, which are very heavily in the northeast, if not exclusively. What are they and what difference do we think that they will make? Starting with two, just from the top of my head, the National Agent Centre and National Innovation Centre for Data, two massive investments. Still a long way to go in terms of, if I just take the passion around my data, I think there's that... Investment could be a trigger for more data-driven innovation, more research, more entrepreneurs, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that those types of investments are game changers. If we still stitch ourselves together around it and be collaborative and work together. So I'll give you an example. You know, some of those investments are backed by the likes of LNG and Aviva that funded the, the buildings, et cetera. I think when we're looking at money now that can make a change, we've got a line up to ESG and, as, as Robin said, B Corps. And we've got to provide those organisations with things like NatWest, 
who set two billion pound aside for for women entrepreneurship, particularly in STEM. And that's not exclusive to the market players. It's it's it's, it's inclusive for us. This we've got this project here, and we'd like you to help us with support with some some corporate support, some goodwill, some involvement from your team. So an example would be Moneymatics, which I'm an advisor to. And Moneymatics is is primarily aimed at vulnerable people in Edinburgh. We've just got funding and support from from that West and nationwide. So I think that when you're looking at capital, because everything really starts with money, because what entrepreneurs do, they have to bootstrap, remortgage their house often to get the funds. But if the, if the money's already committed to the problems and the ideas you have to come at and the money's already there, because corporates, PVCs, whatever, put the money on the platform, that allows your entrepreneurs to get on with a job. And that's a slightly difference in America is that the... They might want your life, but they don't want your collateral. They want you to have a happy life and be sustainable life while you're an entrepreneur. So I think some of those access to finance and access to environments such as where the investments have gone is a huge opportunity. And Estelle, Kevin mentioned there women in innovation, and I know this is something that you're very passionate about. You've led many a programme, haven't you, to encourage women into innovation? Yes, yes, it is something I'm very passionate about because it's not just a nice thing to to do, it's an economic imperative. So we are talking about making a difference, changing the, the kind of impact that we have got in the North. If we unlock inclusion, and I include gender inclusion in, in that equation, we will achieve that. That alongside sustainable business models. These are the two things that we need in my opinion, to achieve that. And unfortunately, despite a huge amount of work done in that space, the dial is not moving fast enough. And yet we have seen big differences when you, when you do focus on this problem and try and address it, you can see a difference. So an example of that is something that I've been personally involved and in also with the Innovation Super Network. We are a founding member of something called Fund Her North, which was very simple. I always called it a coalition of the willing. Lots of organisations, banks, the British Business Bank, Innovate UK, small angel investors and VC funds all coming together trying to make a difference. And we all sat around the table one day and said, we have access to so many grants, so many equity funding, so much loan. If we put it together and really try and direct this to female-founded businesses, what will happen? And what happens is that female-founded businesses found the money and they, they, they got somewhere. We increased the number of female angel investors in our network by 25% which is way above the national average. We invested in over 100 female-led businesses or mixed founding teams, and that's how you make a difference. So, yes, targeted interventions make a difference. The fundamental belief that we had to start with is that the problem was not with fixing the women, which is something that often happens in innovation and entrepreneurship and women trying to access finance, is that the problem is lack of confidence, lack of knowledge, lack of et cetera, et cetera. And that's true, but that's equally true with, with men and anybody in between. Basically, these are the barriers to access finance. So the problem was not to fix women. The problem was to fix the way that we look at opportunities and investment from an investor's point of view. 
And there's a lot of work to do, but that's a very good example. And I know there are many examples like that. The UK Business Angel Association, the British Business Bank, lots of national organisations are really working on this because we know and we have observed that when you, you have targeted interventions of that type, you are making a difference. And if you unlock that, the effect on in the economy, not just in the northeast, but nationally, is in billions of pounds. So, so this is not just we want to be nice and equal to women, although that that would be nice. But <laughs> this is about the north here and and economic and social impact. That that's how we achieve this. So, unfortunately, there's a lot of work. This is definitely falls into the category of this is systemic change that we're talking about, not you know, isolated interventions, especially the ones that are aimed at fixing the women. I strongly believe personally that this is not the issue. The issue is institutional, is how investment has been made and the perceived risk, which, as we know in the UK, is even worse than anywhere else. So the perception that, you know, when you invest in a female-founded business, you're taking more risk. The statistics are telling you exactly the opposite of that. So there's a lot of work to do, but this is something that, in my opinion, alongside sustainability is going to be what changes our economic makeup. So if we are more inclusive and more sustainable, we will change the metrics. And if I may, as I'm talking about this, building on, on this point, I think a huge issue that we've got is how we measure things. And I'm spe specifically here talking about innovation because that's a, a space I know well and indeed how we view success and profit. So in innovation in, in the region, we measure innovation in R&D investment and IP. So basically how many patents we file a year. And if you take those measures only, Again, the North East is at the bottom of, I think, most of the leaderboards. But the question is, are we measuring the right thing? When we have innovation intervention, we measure it in jobs, how many jobs it creates. We don't think about the quality of the jobs that are created. So what I would suggest is that we start thinking about how we measure things differently, how we look at success. You know, is it just the bottom line or are we talking you know about the triple bottom line and we talked about b corp we talked about you know changing the way we view organizations so success is not based on this kind of alpha male kind of you know entrepreneurial image that that we've we've created but on something different that actually has an impact not just on in economic terms of profitability but on the people and the society around you that certainly sounds like something that FinPAC should be building into its measurement of the success of its projects, Kevin, not to put you on the spot there. It, well, we've got one out of the box. We've, it's, it's great to yeah, still talk about the five Ps, you know, when you start to put in people and planet into purpose and profit. It makes absolutely sense to investors as well. So an example would be green finance. If we don't fix the rented accommodation and social housing in the UK with affordable access to sustainable energy, we won't hit net zero. That's easier said than done. It's how can you fund, give access to high-value solar panels and heat pumps to people that can't afford £30 a month for Wi-Fi. So there has to be some change in the, how, how social capital works. And the you know it'll be debated at, at the profit level rather than, as Estelle said, at the impact level. So you need to measure impact. So, so, in, and so in that project... We're looking at what's the delta for that to be affordable by giving more energy back to the grid by doing that change so that it becomes a sustainable 
piece of work that you can then start to look at how do we innovate. And then there is great things happening in Cardiff, for example, putting in small servers on the cloud under the, under the staircases of rented accommodation to give people free energy. And th- that kit is getting cheaper and cheaper all the time. So when you stand up the problem, and if you start from the commercial angle rather than the impact, you'll struggle to set, set that business model up. It needs to start with what is the difference that you're going to be making. And that's why I see the opportunity to create OKRs for impact. Building on again what Estelle said, this is a meaningful job in digital. They're 13% above the average wage for a first-time job. They're based in the northeast, so they're spending in the economy. And we can track that through the GDP. Or we can track it through the inward investment or outwards investment because it's a great place to work. So what you're seeing is these, these dimensions of how many IP... Have you set up? It's meaningless to people in the street. It's how many jobs you've created and changed families' lives, etc. That really is impactful. Yeah, for sure. Because when I'm thinking about social innovation, I'm not thinking about IP. I'm thinking about people. I'm thinking about the difference that you've made to somebody's life. And, you know, Robin's business at Banquet is a perfect example of that. I'm not thinking about job creation when I'm thinking about Banquet. I'm thinking about people being fed. I'm thinking about the quality of their lives and thinking about all of the volunteers that are contributing to that success. And as entrepreneurs, we're thinking, how can we scale that for DWP yeah. and social services about getting food parcels as part of that support and getting healthy meals to kids? And I think one of the really interesting things, if I may, about your business, Robin, is that you know you are a company and actually you could have chosen to set up as a charity but charities aren't always sustainable and that in itself can take an awful lot of energy so I'm really interested in the fact that you've taken this route of creating a limited company to do the great work that you're doing. Yeah thank you so yeah at the very beginning and again this is informed by what I said earlier like what do I know what is in my hand you know I'd, I'd worked through the music industry and I'd seen it change firsthand my job was selling CDs to HMV and then the iPhone comes out, iTunes, and it goes to streaming. Then I was volunteering in a food bank, and I saw a year's worth of pasta and baked beans, but I thought this may be able to go online. And my sort of light bulb moment, as every entrepreneur would have, is like, why isn't there an online food bank? I'm literally doing everything else on my phone. And, you know, I'm in the bubble in London. It's like everyone uses Monzo, Deliveroo, all of these apps. It's all on your phone. It's the first thing that you do. So I was collecting things from my local food bank in the local co-op, taking them back to my flat, sorting them, and then taking them to Bow Food Bank, which is in East London. And I thought there must be an easy way of doing that. So the, that was the original idea. How do we take this online? Now we'd say we sort of, across the UK, have modernised the food bank supply chain. Wouldn't have had that language at the beginning. We just want to make it easy for me. I'm lazy. I want to do something good. I do want to, I do want to give food to the local food bank. We're a nation of good intentions. If you asked everyone what you see on the way home, do you want to donate to, to Gateshead Food Bank? Or, or help a homeless person, you'd probably say, yeah, yeah, I do. But then, you're like, okay, where is the food bank? What do they need? I'm going to go and buy that stuff. Then I'm going to have to drop it off and I've oh, got to pick the kids up or I'm late for whatever I'm doing. So we touched on this earlier, the value we release, that's why I think we, you know, we've got two sides. We are a social impact company. So our KPIs and profits, number of people help. So we've fed 101,000 people for a week since launching in July 2019. 
how we work and how we release value for both the donor and the food bank is, so we essentially crowdsource money. So you'd say, right, I give £10 to a food bank of your choice on the platform, or you can make a general donation if you wish. So lots of people, and that's the community spirit of the North East, a passionate amazing community would probably want to support the local food bank you know they may have used it they may have volunteered they may live by it people donate money we then keep that in a piggyback for them and then food banks log into our platform and say right i've got 1500 pounds worth of donations there but i want size six nappies i want tin chickpeas and i want toilet rolls our team then goes and buys that wholesale pricing so release value for the donor unless you donate a lot of money you may not be able to get wholesale discount and then we deliver it to the food bank and save them time and money. So we increase donations because we've gone online. We get more bang for your buck. We say for every pound donated, we deliver more than a pound to the food. And unlike offline, where someone has to go into the supermarket and, and do it, actually be there, and the food bank has to collect that, it's often elderly folk who are retired. That's the resource base of food banks. So amazing people across the UK are giving their own time to run a food bank. People having to go and collect that stock and then do it. But you've mentioned this a couple of times of sustainable business models. I mean, we're essentially a consignment drop ship wholesale business. So that doesn't roll off the tongue. What that means is we collect everyone's money from anywhere on the anywhere in the UK. 52% of people use their mobile phone to donate because it's easy. We use responsive tech. Didn't cost us lots of money. It's an off-the-shelf product. So that's another thing of like don't need to raise loads of money to build a fancy website. We use Squarespace. It works on your mobile. It works on your laptop. And then we ship from across the UK. So when we're shipping food to Gateshead Food Bank, you know, trucks not coming up from London, that's from a regional distribution centre for some of the biggest grocers in the country. So, you know, we're looking at the supply chain that's already there. If someone gave Banquet a loan of money, we wouldn't, we wouldn't set up warehouses, we wouldn't have trucks. We're not going to be able to do a better job than the grocers, are we? So it makes it better for them because they're like, okay, we're, we're buying stock from you. We're buying well. We've got 300 food banks in the UK. So actually we're saying, well, we're, we're a big customer now. We want to make sure this stock is in this position at this time and we want to ship it. So we reduce shrinkage. That means that you know when you do an online shop and something doesn't arrive, either doesn't arrive or they switch it out. For Banquet, we can forecast using, at the minute, quite primitive tech, but I think in the future we'll put AI in there, start forecasting, like, okay, what do we actually need every week? We know what goes in a food bank parcel because for anyone listening, that's traditionally like 30 items that go in a parcel and that gets scaled up depending on the family need. So single person, couple or small, medium, large families, it's essentially the same stuff. We know that's going to be asked for by a food bank. So we're sitting there with retailers going, right, over the next quarter, one a banquet food bank will order this. So that has benefits for the donor, that has benefits for the food bank, and ultimately the people we're trying to help is the guests walking in. So they get the things that they actually need. And, you know, if everyone listening to this put a fiver into a hat and said, right, we're having a party, you go and buy a multi-pack of something, we're essentially doing that at scale. You know, in your own shopping, buy one can of something, it'll cost you X. Buy a multi-pack, it'll cost you this. We're saying, right, we'll buy 40 cases of that at a time. And in it goes. So it's like it's becoming a sustainable business at the same time. And and it sort of, you know, it works. Whilst respecting the principles of ESG, which Kevin has, has already talked about. And, you know, you, you mentioned there that we are a nation of good intention. And that is absolutely true. I see it everywhere. So I suppose my question is, you know, if someone listening to this has a great idea to solve a social problem, what's the first step that they should take? Take one step. 
do something, put pen to paper. Uh, the Lean Startup, I'm sure everyone in this room has read, that's the first thing. Put your pen to paper, write it down. Ask people, I love Kevin's network and his mindset of like, ask loads of people about it. Ask someone who's for free advice, can I buy you a coffee? Can I talk to you about my idea? And hope you might get, no, that's not a good idea. That's as useful as, that's a great idea again. Who's the most important people in your lives? And I think it's, it's finding that person, that mentor, that person, that catalyst that says, right, that sounds like a great idea. You know, we're going we're to bring that to life. And you might have other people that says, well, that's, that's a benefit in kind. We should be taxing people that gets beans. Ignore them. Break the people that don't help you start to bring that to life. Change your company. Yeah, because often when we are innovating, particularly around social purpose, we are being quite disruptive and that can be really unsettling for the marketplace. So, you know, you say put pen to paper and just take a step, but you will have lots of people, I assume, telling you that it's a terrible idea because they don't want to break the status quo. Yeah, and that's we hear so many stories of, of individuals just like that. And if they had stopped at the first hurdle and generally the this can't be done because you know, we wouldn't have seen some, some tremendous ideas come to fruition. So it's about two things. It's it's believing in the, the case you're trying to change, really understanding it. And I think in innovation, we don't spend enough time thinking about a problem. We, we jump straight to solutions. So generally entrepreneurs with the light bulb mo- moment will have had a really good understanding of what the problem is and exactly what needs to be solved. So go and talk to other people, collaborate. You know, we've, we've said that so many times and don't be afraid of rejection because generally the hardest thing that you're trying to do, it, it will be complicated, there will be obstacles, but there are a lot of people who are willing to help as well, especially in a region like the Northeast. As, as I've read before, there's a really good support ecosystem and environment. So we want to talk to these people. So we talk about collaboration, don't we? But often it comes across as competition. Do we do that better in the Northeast than other places, do you think? I think we we'll collaborate well to a point, but getting it across the line, I think, is where we can improve. I think the other piece of advice is in having a good story. They're putting a story together that someone like Robin is about. I was 13 year old. I was living with a single mum working in the gig economy. But every month I made it to school for the last four years. I've passed my O levels and I'm going to do my A levels because I had access to hygiene products every four weeks. So I didn't miss a day of school. So you have to bring your stories to life in, in real people as well. What's the impact that you're going to make? And that girl went on to go to university and get a good job and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. It's stitching that whole thing together. But it started with that pen. One thing I was going to say, I've always, always had fond memories of the northeast of England. I was, I was in a student time of my life, so that's maybe one bubble that I acknowledge was there. But, you know, London, for all its benefits, can be a very lonely, isolating space. Okay, so I've been there for 16 years. I do have a wonderful network of friends and things like that. But I think one of the things that I love about the northeast is the community spirit. You can actually live near your friends. You can, like, you know, fans of Newcastle United, amongst the most passionate fans, football fans, it helps that St James's Park is right in the middle of the city, right? So I, I could see different. This is truly unique. I, I subscribe to all the views we've talked about. There should be more inward investment. There should be better transport links. It's inevitable London's always going to be this thing, isn't it? But, I mean, there's things about this part of the country that are wonderfully unique. I think, yeah, I think technology for me in my bubble of technology, I can see how that would change. 
who are that are lower barriers to entry. I mean, some of the stories you're talking about there about people getting online, the really base level stuff. Once you're over those barriers, I think there are wonderful ways of innovating. You know, Banquet won an award from the Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year. They used to call that disruption, right? Which, as you said, had negative connotations because you know more, more generally as a nation we don't want to change. You know, oh things are fine as they are, thanks. Like we all know they're not. We know the systems are broken. But innovation for me is a very very positive mindset. It's like you know everything has to change and and it, and it will. And I think that's a great place for us to wrap up. But before we wrap up, I'm just going to ask each of you a question, which is what needs to happen on Monday to make a difference? Kevin, I'll start with you, please. Anyone that's got a good idea that needs some talent to stand up the thing that they want to do some research or build a use case and they want to get access to some mentors and and just road test, strength test an idea or a concept, pick up the phone or... Go online to finpact.co.uk, register your interest, and we'll take it from there. Thank you. Robin? Firstly, if you're able to, please go to banquet, B-A-N-K-U-E-T.co.uk forward slash give now and do donate to your local food bank. You can make a difference in just a few clicks. And also as an encouragement to anyone wanting to be an entrepreneur or do something, would be you know, ask yourself what's in your hand and then just take the first step. Go and make it happen. Estelle? Three things, if I may. Three things. Three things to do on Monday. Yeah, that's good. Go for it. (laughs) The the, the first one is invest in women because you won't regret it. And it would be really good if in a year's time or or in the future when we do a similar podcast, the statistics is moving from one pound invested in the UK. Only one penny goes to women-led businesses at the moment. So really, we need to, to shift that. So starting on Monday... We need to invest in women businesses. That the second thing is consider changing how we measure things. Think about people. Think about the planet, as Kevin rightly said earlier on. So we need to really think about how we measure things to make a difference. And the third thing is continue to collaborate. Yes, we're good at collaborating, but things get hard when resources are stretched and collaboration is the only answer. So we need to continue to do this and not see health, education, investment, innovation as separate things. They're all part of the same thing. Thank you very much. This podcast is hosted by Alison Dunn, an award-winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. In this episode, we heard from Robin Ferris, the founder of Banquet, a tech-for-good startup and the UK's first zero-waste food donation platform. Estelle Blanks is Chief Executive of the Innovation Super Network. With over 20 years' experience in economic development through regeneration and innovation in the northeast of England, strategy consultant Kevin Telford is an innovative, curious and award-winning business development founder and leader. He engages with purpose-driven and impact-focused organisations at any level of maturity.